thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Katani, and with him, Chris Smith. This week, how, thanks to mobile gadgets and phones, we're hemorrhaging personal information without even realising it. We'll hear how snoopers can eavesdrop on your mobile signals while you're out in public to track down your home address. And what did a computer scientist discover on a bunch of second-hand mobile phones picked up off eBay? We'll talk to him to find out. Plus, the stories making the headlines from the world of science and technology, including figuring out just how much dark matter is in the Milky Way and a breath test that could diagnose Parkinson's disease. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, for people with type 1 diabetes whose pancreas doesn't make enough of the glucose-regulating hormone insulin, life is dominated by testing their blood sugar levels and injecting insulin. But what if this injected insulin could be made smarter, circulating in the body until the exact time it's needed, only springing into action after a meal? It sounds too good to be true, but now MIT scientist Matthew Weber has made that happen, at least in mice. The idea was to try to make insulin a little bit more autonomous if the insulin molecule itself could remain in the body but not be functional unless it was needed. So if blood glucose levels go up as a result of a meal, then the insulin could turn on and become active versus the patient having to kind of know when their blood glucose level is high and inject themselves. Describe to me a bit more about this particular insulin. What does it look like and how does it work? So the vision for the insulin, or at least how we anticipate it to work, is that the small molecule that we've attached to the insulin protein itself would enable the insulin to become sequestered within the body and be inactive. So it would hide away when it's not needed? Right. So yeah, it would remain sequestered and hide until it was needed. And then what happens when someone, say, has a dinner and their blood glucose starts to go up? So that was the, the, the general idea we tried to simulate in the mouse was a meal. So we inject glucose to simulate a meal, and then the insulin, in theory, will turn on and will um, become active and ready, and then will result in a reduction of blood glucose levels, the way insulin is supposed to normally work in a healthy, you know, functioning pancreas. So explain a little bit more about how does the glucose actually make this clever insulin come out of hiding? How, How does that work? So the mechanism is not entirely clear to us. Even though you built it? Even though we built it, yes. So we had an envision mechanism in mind, which was that it would bind to a protein that is in very high concentration in the blood, which would make it inactive. And then in the presence of glucose, it would reduce the binding to this protein, and then it would become more active. We weren't able to verify that mechanism in situ in a test tube, but that doesn't necessarily mean the mechanism isn't working that way when it's in the body. Uh, When you get into the complex kind of physiologic environment of the body, uh, a lot can change. But I guess the key thing, and for anyone who's listening who is affected by type 1 diabetes, is going to be, does it work and how soon is it going to be here? Right. So does it work? It works in mice. 
some of our studies demonstrate that it works as well as a healthy pancreas, which is really the ultimate gold standard for glucose control. That's the way a healthy person would control their glucose. So it works in mice. As far as moving forward, we're currently in negotiations with some pharmaceutical companies and some other people that might have interests in helping us to advance this clinically. And hopefully that's a process that can begin in the you know, coming, coming months and years before uh, we'll actually know for sure if it's working well in, in the human setting. Assuming that all goes well and that the further tests and eventually taking it into humans does go well, how do you envisage it working? Would someone say take it once a week? So the idea I think would be that a person would maybe take this once a day. Uh, I think that uh, it would kind of serve to provide a, like a basal level of insulin in the body that could become activated to help with some of the glycemic control issues that diabetics often experience. Matthew Weber there from MIT describing the work he's published this week in PNAS. Amazing. Intelligent molecules. Smart drugs all round. Now, what makes some violins sound better than others? To find out, a team of physicists have subjected hundreds of the instruments to scientific scrutiny. The F-shaped hole carved through the body of the instrument turns out to be a major contribution to the sound. Greer Jackson's been hearing how. I'm Nick McCreese. I'm a professor at MIT. Nick's love affair with stringed instruments began 10 years ago after a trip to Istanbul. What you can hear is Nick playing the lute. It's similar to a guitar, except it has a mere 26 strings, and the body is shaped a bit like half an egg. It wasn't until Nick was leafing through a friend's sheet music collection that his background in science and music really came to head. I happened to see a Renaissance songbook that a friend of mine had lying around. And on it, I saw a picture of something that looked like a violin that an angel was holding, and it didn't have an F-hole on it. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. It had more of a C-shaped hole. And I thought, could there have been an evolution? It turns out there was, from a C-shaped hole to an F-shaped hole. F-holes are these slim chasms either side of the bridge and the strings that reveal the innards of the violin. The thing is, the violin, complete with F-holes, was first designed in 1555 by Andrea Amati. After the Amati family's reign of violin making, there was the Stradivari family and then the Guanari family. All three families carved out these F-shaped holes. All three families were from the Italian town of Cremona and all three families' designs of violin are still revered to this day. However, by the 1750s, this Cremonese dynasty of violin makers died and with them their trade secrets. For us now to go back and understand what their methods and uh, approaches were is a bit of a mystery for violin makers as well as scientists. And so what we're trying to do in our analysis is go back and look at the physical remains and see how they change. Everyone wants to recreate the sounds of these famous Cremonese violins, but it's pretty hard. Each violin has its own distinct sound, even when building like for like, because of the hand-made nature of the trade. I'm Juliet Barker. I've been a violin maker for 60 years and I've been teaching violin making to amateurs for 50 years now. I actually play the viola. So talk me through how you might go about making a violin. I'm sure there are many, many steps involved. 
Well, there's also many, many ways of doing it. The best job of all, of course, is choosing the wood. And you look at all the pretty maple for the back, the ribs and the scroll. And then you look for a nice piece of spruce to make the front. So you have to shape a couple of blocks, bend a couple of ribs, and then you've got your outline fixed. And then you can get on to the carving. For us, the things that matter are the choice of material to begin with and then getting the right curves on the outside, the arching, and thicknessing the wood, correct for that piece of wood, and every piece of wood, of course, is different. And they're the things that will make the instrument sound good or not. For Nick, the MIT professor, it was the F-hole that caught his ear. Like a detective, Nick took measurements of 470 Cremonese violins, plotted them against other design variants, and... One of the fascinating things that we found is that the F-hole length increased from the Amati time period to the Guarneri time period. And how did that affect their sound? Well, what it's going to do is it's going to make instruments with the longer F-holes more powerful in that low-frequency register. What we found going across the Cremonese period, it was about a 60% increase in power. And some of the other design changes that we found that led to increasing power was also an increase in the back plate thickness. This would make sense. Amati violins are usually chosen to play in smaller venues. They're quieter, less powerful. Whereas Guarneri's violins, with their bigger F-holes, are known for being very powerful and are used in huge concert halls. But why does increasing the size of the F-hole increase its power? If you consider what happens uh, on a windy day near a tall building, The wind comes and the skyscraper is obstructing the flow. Well, that air has to escape somewhere. It goes around the skyscraper. So if you're standing near the base of a skyscraper, you're going to feel it's very, very windy at the perimeter. If you walk some meters away from the perimeter, away from the building, you're going to find it's a lot less windy. And that's essentially what we found. So if you maximize the perimeter length and minimize the void area, you're actually more efficient acoustically. So the circle is going to be the least efficient. It has the most void area and the smallest perimeter. And something like the F-hole, it turns out, has a very, very high perimeter and, and very little void area. So it's extremely efficient. Does that mean we can now build these sort of optimal violins that are super powerful? Well, I wouldn't say that. What we do know for sure is that at these frequencies, we're very confident that these are the effects that are important how everything plays together and how the coupled evolution with the other frequencies and the other ranges, we can't answer those questions yet. But that's the way science works. It works one piece at a time. And the nice thing about this is that the physical data that we've uncovered from the Cremonese instruments is consistent with basic physics. So what this has enabled us to do is eliminate a lot of um, trial and error and guesswork and repetition when you have a physical principle guiding you. Music to my ears. That's Claire Jackson speaking with MIT's Nick McCreese and violin maker Juliet Barker. Indeed, it must be cut because you're a string player, but of harps, aren't you? So slightly different technology there. 
Yeah, I am. I think my soundboard of my harp is also made of spruce and I had to take it to be repaired once. It's fascinating going to a harp workshop, I tell you. I was lucky enough to interview a gentleman from Texas A&M University called Joseph Nodjvari and he was interested in this same question of why are these violins from this part of Italy and this segment of history all sounded so good and he had luckily managed to get hold of some bits of wood from some of the Stradivari and Guarneri violins. He did some analysis and his conclusion was that the wood had been chemically brutalised by boiling in various copper and iron salts and things because you could still see the, the chemical fingerprint of that having happened. And they suggested that this had in turn affected the acoustic properties of the wood. Others have suggested that the wood got brutalised in that way merely as a, a form of insect control because uh, furniture from that period is riddled with woodworm, but these violins never are. So one wonders if that might be part of it too. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Kat Arney. Still to come, the breath test for Parkinson's disease that's been invented and how some simple free software can allow an eavesdropper to find out from your mobile phone where you live and worse. But before that, into outer space. The subject of our next story makes up a significant fraction of the mass of our universe. We can't see it or weigh it, but we know it has to be there. This elusive substance is called dark matter, and now a paper in the journal Nature Physics has found evidence that it's all around us. Kat went to speak to UCL's Chamkor Garg, who wasn't part of this study, but he pursues his own research detecting dark matter here on Earth. We can look at galaxies sort of outside of our own and measure, in particular, the velocity of stars on the very edges of those galaxies. And you can see those stars on the edges are just whizzing around far too fast if they were being held in just by the gravity of all the other stars in there. And that's telling us that, you know, there's this extra mass, there's this extra gravity coming from this dark matter that's all around that galaxy. And that's all well and good sort of looking out at other galaxies, but it'd be quite nice to know what the distribution or, you know, how much dark matter there is in our own galaxy. And that's really important if we're going to try and detect it here on Earth. It'd be quite li- nice to know, you know, just how much there is. Is there any in, in, our, in our galaxy? And, and, and just is there any, you know, sort of around our local neighbourhood? And this paper's telling us that, yes, there is. So by looking at how stars and things like that in our own galaxy are moving, they can infer that, oh, there must be this much push from the dark matter here, there must be this much dark matter here. That's right. It's um, more of a pull, really. They're kind of saying that, you know, th- this is all being held together to allow these, you know, these stars and other gas clouds to be, to be whizzing around at the speeds that they're moving around at. They must be being held on by a lot of sort of force, a lot of strength there, and that must be dark matter. They've got a you know, really strong sort of statistical significance here, um, stating that there is dark matter here in our, in our own galaxy. That's still pretty big. Uh, you know, is, is there dark matter on Earth? Could there be dark matter here in this office? Yes, as the Earth is sort of going around the sun and as the sun is moving around uh, the centre of the galaxy, we'd be feeling, experiencing a sort of dark matter wind coming at us. And so this dark matter sort of whooshes through the, the Earth all the time. And for every sort of pint of, um, of volume, you know, any, any pint glass you hold up, there's a roughly one dark matter particle in there, we think. Um, and it's moving through at about 220 kilometres a second. So it's, you know, it's, it's whizzing through all the time. There's millions of these things going through your body you know, all the time. It's just a case of, do any of them interact? Do they scatter? Do they sort of bounce off regular atoms? If they do, great, because then we've got a chance to actually find them with, with terrestrial detectors that we put underground. Now we know roughly, I guess, how much dark matter we think is in our galaxy. What next? What's the significance of this finding? 
what this paper's allowed us to do is really you know, increase our, our um, sort of statistics in mapping how much dark matter on average there is in our own Milky Way, at extending out to where we are right now. And it's giving us a good handle, you know, some, some nice evidence, some confidence for when we do go and search for dark matter. It's really telling us that, look, it's okay, there is stuff here. We would expect to see this stuff if it interacts the way we think it does. And if we can start to do this, you know, with more and more precision, with greater accuracy, um, we might start to figure out the distribution of dark matter also. You know, we might be sitting in a pocket where there's a lot of dark matter or there's not much dark matter. And that really impacts our chances for, for finding the stuff. UCL's Chamkor Garg was talking to Kat. Uh, you can hear a longer version of that interview, including a peek at his Dark Matter Detector, which is a special podcast. It's on the Naked Scientist website now, nakedscientist.com forward slash specials. You went to have a look at it, Kat. I did. I have Were you to say, impressed? It, it basically, it's about the size of a washing machine and it's wrapped in tinfoil. It didn't look that cool, but there's some very, very cool technology inside it. He did assure me. Was it really not just a washing machine wrapped in foil? No, apparently not. Apparently it's got like argon or something in. Uh, but anyway, in Cambridge this month, scientists are battling it out in an effort to become the city's fame lab champion. Six finalists have been chosen by a panel of judges and they're set to go head to head on the 9th of March at the Cambridge Junction. Between now and then, we're going to be hearing from one of those finalists every single week. And first up is Kirsten Gapfrick, who is with us now. Kirsten, just before we launch into what you managed to win your heat with, tell us a bit about you. I'm a PhD student at the Cavendish Laboratory. That's the Department of Physics of the University of Cambridge. And that is actually where Watson and Crick discovered the structure of the DNA about 60 years ago. And actually in my lab, we're also working with DNA. And so it's entirely relevant that your three-minute piece is going to be on how we read the sequence of DNA. Yes, I believe as a scientist, it is my duty to make people aware of a technology which I believe will have a big impact on our lives in the very near future. And we as scientists, we can only deliver tools, but we have to decide as a society on how we want to use them. And this is why I believe information is the key. And I want to make people aware of what is the state of the art of DNA sequencing. Right. The rules of FameLab, you get three minutes and uh, we're going to time you. We're going to give you your three minutes. Okay. Kirsten Gapfrick, your time on DNA sequencing starts now. DNA is the molecule that stores the information of life, a molecule that copies itself. Surely the greatest invention of nature and actually the reason we are all here today Volumes of history are written in the ancient alphabet of A and T, G and C. Stories of the present and the past that we're just starting to decipher. And that is where DNA sequencing comes in. DNA sequencing means decoding the information of life, reading the three billion letters of the human genome. That is a lot of information. The naked scientist would have to broadcast continuously, day and night, for a hundred thousand years before they will have broadcasted three billion podcasts. So why do we even bother? We scientists believe that DNA sequencing will help us to give the right drug to the right patient, to prevent diseases long before we even suffer from the symptoms. This is why the Human Genome Project was initiated. It took 150 scientists, 13 years and $3 billion to decode one single human genome. That was back in 2003. Sequencing for everyone? 
Certainly not. But what if we could do it for less than a thousand dollars in ten minutes using a small device like this USB stick? This might be possible by nanopore sequencing, a technique pioneered by our collaborators Oxford Nanopore. DNA sequencing could be done on the fly in the hospitals during an operation. The thousand dollar genome became a catchphrase for the sequencing industry, attracting inventors and investors. And actually it was last year that the sequencing giant Illumina announced that they can sequence a human genome for under a thousand dollars. You may think that computers have developed at an unprecedented speed with computing power doubling every two years, but that is nothing compared to DNA sequencing. The cost of DNA sequencing has dropped by a factor of 100,000 in just a decade. To me, that is overwhelming. But there is not much time to be overwhelmed because we are facing a new reality. Do we want to predict our fortune with DNA sequences? Do we want to accept that we are fat because we have the couch potato gene? DNA stands for do not abuse, do not alter, or dignity needs awareness. Let's be aware of what is out there. DNA sequencing is at our fingertips and it has the power to change our lives in a good and in a bad way. So I invite you to work together to come towards sensible guidelines for our future. Kirsten, that was uh, to the second three minutes. Very well done. Kirsten Gapfrick from the University of Cambridge. She was one of the FameLab finalists. Um, one person said to me, why is DNA called DNA? And the answer, of course, is dunno. Grown. Your jokes are getting worse, I'm sure. More than 7 million people worldwide are living with Parkinson's disease, but one in 10 of them might actually have a disorder that resembles Parkinson's, but is in fact a slightly different disease that might need treating in a different way. Now scientists in Cambridge and Israel are working on a breath test that can make diagnosis of the disease more accurate. Simon Stott. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative condition. That means that you're losing cells in the brain. One of the issues with the disease is diagnosis. The only definitive diagnosis comes at the post-mortem stage. And when we look at the brains of individuals at that stage, 10 to 15% get re-diagnosed as something else. And that's quite a sizable part of the affected population. Is that a problem for those people because their treatment might not be optimal? Exactly. Given that the post-mortem stage is probably a bit late for the majority of cases, you would like to bring that diagnostic forward? Exactly. And the way we want to do that is look for biomarkers. These are chemicals that the body is producing that we can use to differentiate between two populations of people We are looking at uh, blood, we're looking at urine samples, we're looking at cerebral spinal fluid. These are all very invasive approaches, though. So using a breath test is uh, much more simplified. For real, you're able to, to literally take a sample of breath and this will tell you what's going on in someone's brain. So this is a question that often pops up. How is it that something in the brain could be coming out of your breath? Two of the main pathways for um, excretion of waste or unnecessary material in the body are the respiratory system and the gastrointestinal system, and both of them are connected with the mouth. And what we breathe out will include everything from coffee and what you had for breakfast to other metabolic processes going on in the body. We have about 1,500 people with Parkinson's disease on our books. We have clinical data for most of these people going back 15 to 18 years. And we're going to 
take all of that clinical data and start lining it up alongside the chemicals that are coming out of the breath test and see if we um, can't start to put people into subpopulations with the condition. You take the person, their diagnosis and their breath chemicals, looking for chemicals that keep behaving like a repeat offender. This person with this diagnosis has this level of this more often than someone who doesn't have that diagnosis. And so you see that pattern. And then you can say, right, on the basis of, of just now sampling a person at random from the population, if they've got that particular chemical composition in their breath, they may well be developing or actually have Parkinson's. Exactly. We also hope to use this technology to track the disease over time. So some of the chemicals that might be present in very early stage Parkinson's might change um, towards later stages. There's a lot of exciting potential for this work. How likely do you think it'll be that you'll get a breath test for Parkinson's? A lot of the preliminary data coming from our collaborators in Israel, they've done animal pilot studies where they can differentiate between different models of Parkinson's disease. And now they have the clinical data, which has just been published this month, where they um, can differentiate between people with Parkinson's disease and people without. So we're reasonably confident. Simon Stott, sounding confident there, from Cambridge University. We are the Naked Scientists. He's Chris Smith. I'm Kat Arney. And this week, we're going to be looking more closely at the trusty devices we now carry with us everywhere and seem to use for almost everything, and that's our mobile phones. There are 7.2 billion of them in use on Earth, and these gadgets are multiplying five times faster than we are. Today, smartphones are capable of doing so much more than the mobile phones of just a few years ago. And as a result, we're spending more and more time on them. I certainly know I do. Logging what we've eaten that day, looking up where our next meeting is or uploading cat photos to Facebook. Now, all of this has some obvious benefits, but it's brought with us some serious security risks too, most of which the average user is completely oblivious to. Did you realise, for instance, that leaving your phone's Wi-Fi switched on is broadcasting to the world where you eat, sleep and work, as well as potentially more sensitive information that you definitely don't want revealed? First, we have Dr Laurie Craner from Carnegie Mellon University, who's an expert in data security with us. She's here to tell us what we understand to be a threat in the online world and why we don't perceive our smartphones to be at risk. Hi, Laurie. Hi. Hi, thanks for joining us. Tell me a little bit about, you know, this very scary sounding thing, the big bad world of the Internet. Are we really at risk of our data being spied on or or stolen? And what kind of data is at risk? Yes, absolutely. Our data is constantly at risk whenever we're using a mobile phone, whether the Wi-Fi is on or not, actually. At the very least, your telephone company is tracking you and perhaps others as well. Certainly, turning your Wi-Fi on, turning your Bluetooth on is going to put you at additional risk. Even when you're using your desktop or laptop computer and you're surfing the web, uh, you're also being tracked as far as what websites you're visiting. And what kind of personal data might be at risk from our phones? Well, it depends what you do with your phone. There's your address book, your email, your location. If you're doing online banking, all of this data is potentially at risk. And I guess then if someone got hold of it, they could do pretty bad things with it. Uh, Yeah, especially if you leave your phone without any sort of a password or PIN, then anybody picking up your phone can basically act as you. 
<laughs> pretty scary stuff. What do the general public think are the risks? I mean, obviously, a lot of people seem to be fairly oblivious that their phone is leaking data around them. Yeah, I think most people are fairly oblivious and are unaware of the risks. You've done some nice research with children about how children view this, because obviously more and more kids are getting smartphones and going online with tablets and kind of things. Yeah, we have a project called Privacy Illustrated, where we have gone into schools with magic markers and paper and asked kids to draw pictures of privacy and what privacy means to them. We've also done it with adults. But the children's drawings have been particularly interesting. Uh, We find with the youngest children, they're not yet thinking about technology. They're thinking about being able to go to their room or to the bathroom and close the door. But then as they get older, then we start seeing images with kids using uh, smartphones and computers and some concern about privacy when they go online. A big thing with kids is as they start using text messages, this becomes an extremely private form of conversation for them. I should imagine that not their parents or anyone else seeing what they're saying. Exactly. And uh, why do you think the public does seem quite oblivious about the risks of data leaking out of our smartphones? Well, because it's a leak that we don't see. There's no telltale drip, drip, drip that you see. And so uh, people don't know it's happening. And should they be concerned? I mean, you know, how I'm just walking down the street with my phone. How at risk am I as an individual of someone getting hold of my data and and doing something bad with it? Can we be overly paranoid about this? Yeah, well, there's a lot of different types of risks, and there's some of them that may never impact you until they do. I mean, one type of risk is somebody actually stealing your um, identity, being able to break into your bank accounts, things like that. And that's a very tangible risk that, that people can understand. But there are also risks associated with just having things that you wanted only your friends to see or hear being made public. And that actually can be devastating to people depending on what that information is and if it is passed on to their employers or their parents or their spouse. There's uh, definitely information that can get out that can be really harmful to people. Do you have a smartphone and are you very careful about what you put on it? I do have a smartphone and I do try to be careful with it. I never post anything that would be upsetting to me if I saw it on the front page of a newspaper. Are you going to post that you've been on The Naked Scientists? Yeah, I think that's probably okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much. That's Carnegie Mellon's Laurie Craner. Ed Wilson's tweeted at Naked Scientists, I keep turning my phone's Wi-Fi off, but the phone keeps turning it back on. Ed, they're on to you. Simon Brown, meanwhile, has tweeted at Naked Scientists, I'm tracked, therefore I am. You've probably heard the phrase, there's an app for that, whether it's Facebook, Angry Birds, Google Maps, WhatsApp. There are thousands of apps available online. You download them to your phone or tablet computer and your every need can be catered for at the swipe of a screen. And this is really big business. Each of us uses on average 25 to 30 of these phone applications at any time. So it's no wonder that we just tend to hit the accept button when an app asks for permission to use our device's camera, to have access to our contacts or even look at our location. But why would something like a game need to know this information? And what exactly are these apps doing with this unrestricted access to our data? Could some of them be recording our private conversations or logging where we go for coffee every Tuesday to sell the data to third parties? It certainly sounds scary, but believe me, it is real. 
several app developers have already been prosecuted in America for doing precisely this. Carnegie Mellon University's Jason Hong has now set up a website that grades apps based on their threats to our privacy. And he's with us now. Hello, Jason. Hi there. So what sort of data is being collected by these applications? Well, there's lots of different kinds of data that the smartphone app can store. So, for example, they might be gathering your phone's unique ID, they might be getting your current location, or they might be trying to get access to your contact list. And the big question is, well, why do they need that information? Well, in some cases, the apps are trying to use these kinds of data sources in new ways. So, for example, we've seen apps that are games that are using your location data to create location-based kinds of games. But other times they're using it for advertising purposes, or they're also trying to bootstrap their social network by getting your entire contact list and then spamming your friends to see if they're interested in joining as well. But this is illegal, isn't it? Well, it really depends. In some cases, the information is actually disclosed in a privacy policy that that's what they're going to do. When you install this software on your phone, can it leave a sort of vestige of itself there, even if you get rid of it, so that there is always a danger that it's done something to your phone that means someone somewhere could still nonetheless have access to the information, even though the app is no longer there. Yes, that's right. Whenever you use a lot of these free apps, they're primarily funded by advertising. And so what happens is that these advertisers are trying to collect a lot of data about you. So even if you remove a specific app, you might still be using other apps that are using the same kinds of advertising services. So you were motivated to set up your website to try to point the finger at some of the worst offenders and also highlight some good practice. That's right. And so what we did is we downloaded about a million different Android smartphone apps and we started analyzing them to try to understand what the behaviors were. So for example, right now you can easily tell that an app is using location data, but you can't tell why. So what we did is we tried to infer the purpose. So for example, is it using location data for social networking, advertising, or analytics? And then for the second part of the work, we also used a whole bunch of these crowdsourcing techniques. Uh, You can imagine this being a very large-scale kind of survey where we're asking a lot of people how they felt about these kinds of behaviors. So, for example, people are very unhappy about contact lists being used for advertising, but are mostly okay with contact lists being used for social networking. Can you give us some physical examples of the kinds of apps that you think behave appropriately and perhaps some examples of ones that have been downright malicious? So uh, one app that has a very surprising kind of behavior, but it's sort of fun, there's this dictionary app where you can actually look up what other words that people around you are looking up. And uh, just sort of as a funny joke, uh, one time I was in Washington, D.C., and I was showing some other people this app, and the word that was being shown nearby was corruption. Ooh, don't do that in uh, Westminster either. You might catch one or two MPs on that one. I was looking at an example because I saw this news flash come round, and excuse the pun on flash, but it was about this flashlight app because I've downloaded this myself. You can turn the, the flash on your camera phone into a steady light source that you can use as a sort of torch in the night. Uh, and there's evidence that some of those are being used to do things like turn on the microphone in your phone when you don't want to, so that people can eavesdrop on your conversations even though the phone isn't making a phone call. That's right. There are some really unusual kinds of behaviours. Uh, we've seen some flashlight apps that request internet access, they're trying to get your phone's unique ID, and they're also trying to get your current location. Now, the reason that they're trying to do this, again, is mostly for advertising purposes. So right now, there's sort of this trade-off that's, you can download me for free, but we, the developers, need to make revenue off of it, and so we're going to try to show you ads. But to show you better ads, we're going to try to get more data about you. So, for example, again, your location data and your unique phone ID. 
Sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? Looking at the trajectory of this, where does your research suggest the next threat's coming from, or where are we going to be in the future? Because more and more, these phones and these devices are becoming a dominant part of our lives. I think that in the near future, our smartphones probably will know almost everything about us. And I think in many ways, this will actually be a good thing because our smartphones will be able to help us with healthcare, transportation, and sustainability. But these same technologies offer a lot of kinds of privacy problems as well. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Jason Hong is from Carnegie Mellon University, and you can see how well your apps that you're running on your phone, whether they meet your expectations by going to Jason's website. It's at privacygrade.org if you want to check it out. Now, as Jason has highlighted, many of us are unaware of how much personal information we allow apps to take away from us. But what about our phones themselves? If we had no apps on them, then our personal data should be quite safe, right? Wrong. As it turns out, just by having your Wi-Fi switched to on, you could be broadcasting messages to the world about who you are, what you like, and even where you sleep at night. This is all possible with a free bit of software available online called Snoopy. Greer Jackson reports. I'm whizzing down on a train to London for work. I've got my coffee and a long list of emails to attend to, but my phone signal's a bit patchy. What to do? Well, Wi-Fi would of course be a perfect solution. And sure enough, if I go into my phone settings, there are loads of networks to connect to. Normally, I wouldn't hesitate to click connect, but today I'm having second thoughts. Why? Well, it could be that I'm broadcasting information about myself to the world. I've come to Finsbury Park in North London to meet Glenn Wilkinson, the designer of some software called Snoopy. Snoopy can gather sensitive information from smartphones simply by using their Wi-Fi signal. So hit me, what is the unvarnished truth? If I've got my Wi-Fi on now on my phone, what can you really tell about me? There's all types of different things we can tell from your mobile phone. Now, essentially, the way Wi-Fi works is that um, if you've got your Wi-Fi on, your phone is constantly looking for every wireless network you've ever connected to. It's looking for Starbucks, it's looking for LAX Wi-Fi, it's looking for McDonald's free Wi-Fi, it's looking for your home Wi-Fi, your work Wi-Fi. And it's quite easy to detect those messages. And there's two useful bits of information in that message. One, the name of the network your phone's looking for. And two, a unique, almost serial number that identifies your phone in particular. It's called the MAC address. So immediately I can tell what kind of phone you have, and I know what networks you've previously connected to. Could I think of this as like a unique digital fingerprint? Yep, absolutely. So the overarching idea of the research I'm doing is looking for a unique fingerprint for individuals based on the devices that they carry. Now, Understanding what networks you've connected to can be useful for all kinds of reasons. At the very least, I can understand a little bit about you. If you've previously connected to networks like Hilton Premier Suite and British Airways First Class Lounge, I can infer you're a bit of a high roller. I can maybe also figure out where you work. Um, an example of that recently, I was on a train and I noticed there were um, at least five mobile phones looking for a network. We'll call it Acme Bank Incorporated. And two of the devices were also looking for Hooters. So mm, I don't know what Hooters was. I had to Google it, but apparently it's some kind of bar. Of course you didn't. <laughs> but, you know, immediately quite interesting. I find this, well, terrifying. I'm going to let you demonstrate this. You've attached Snoopy to a drone. 
Why have you attached it to a drone? So Snoopy is inherently mobile. You can run it on certain mobile phones and put it in your pocket and you know, walk around an area. And um, you know, if you attach that to a drone, you, we, can, we can fly the drone autonomously. So we can plot missions. Say, right, I want you to canvas this entire neighborhood of London. It's unfortunately illegal to do this, but you know, I guess criminals wouldn't really care. I was going to say, let's canvas Finsbury Park, but obviously we're not allowed to do that. So why don't we just canvas what we can see and see what sort of data we can pick up? I have to admit, it's pretty cold and there's not many people about. There's a dog walker and a man picking up some litter over there. So do you think we might be able to pick up where these people are from? Yeah, absolutely. So what we'll do, we'll just hover Snoopy within the safe distance of uh, these people, buzz around the park a bit and just illustrate the data being collected in real time and sent back to my laptop where we can analyse it. So we've got, we've got the drone here. Okay, so the drone's not very big. Uh, It's about 500 grams with four propellers. Oh my goodness, it's really fast. How fast can this thing go? So this one, probably on the order of 60 kilometers an hour. So if we just go hover within 50 meters of those people over there, we'll probably get reading in a few seconds. So if we see here, we can see the data. Wow. So that's a lot there. That's from the coffee shop. So where we met earlier, and we detected 254 devices. And now um, flying out here, we got 11. Now what's interesting is we've seen this one device both inside the coffee shop and around the park here. I'm a bit paranoid because what that indicates is someone's following us. They could be knowing what you're up to and what your software is capable of. Is, is that well not? <laughs> and that's why, hey, they're still here somewhere. And uh, someone's been intercepting our emails <laughs> to each other. They're nowhere here. <laughs> and this is a sign that they're watching us. <laughs> oh, dear. But let's have a look at some of the other ones here. So somebody around us has a unknown device. That probably means it's a fairly new one. It's not in our database yet. And it's looking for this um, Sky BA, etc., which is uh, you know, someone's got um, a Skybox at home. And what we can do is we can try and figure out where that person lives. And hey, excellent, we got a hit. So if we double-click on that, we get a photograph and a street address. So ND, what's that? ND Milan Road, London uh, is the postcode. And that photograph that we saw is a photograph of their house or of their neighborhood, I guess. Some beautiful sort of Georgian houses with pillars at the front. So now we could go and pay them a visit if you wanted to. Remind me, why have you built this? Because it seems like a fairly potent and clever and potentially quite dangerous bit of software and hardware to be putting freely available on the internet. I get a lot of comments about why. Why are you releasing this? It's dangerous. But the point of doing research like this is to raise awareness, to just show the public, look how easy this is, look how broken these standards are. I mean, just as a trivial example, if you go to the mall, you'll notice on the entrance there's a very small sticker that says something along the lines of patrons will be monitored via their mobile phones to enhance their shopping experience. That kind of stuff's already being done. The difference is I've released Snoopy for free to put pressure on manufacturers to actually think about what they're doing and realize that, hey, maybe it's not the best way that we're doing things. Maybe we can enhance our security a bit to protect our customers.
As soon as I got home, I turned my Wi-Fi back on, but in future I'll be turning it off when I don't need it. Glenn also suggested I flash my preferred network lists to get rid of the <clears throat> Hooters type Wi-Fi and that I should do this every six months. I'm certainly going to be doing mine right after the show. That's Greer Jackson talking to Snoopy maker Glenn Wilkinson from the global information security company SensePost. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Katani. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com if you'd like to get in touch. We're looking this week at data privacy and particularly the kind of data that your mobile devices are giving away without your knowledge or even your consent. As you just heard, just leaving your phone's Wi-Fi on could mean that you're actually placing yourself at quite considerable risk. But there's a risk beyond just the Wi-Fi. Because often when we upgrade our smartphones, we're given the option to recycle the old phone. And why not? That seems a good idea for the environment. And you might even walk away with some extra cash in your pocket. So what do you do? Well, you delete everything on the phone and then you hand it over. End of story, right? Well, no, because last year, Cambridge University computer scientist Laurent Simon bought some second-hand Android phones off eBay. They were all advertised as having been wiped of all the personal data, except when Laurent plugged them into his laptop, he could recover almost everything, ranging from old photos to text messages and even passwords for things like email and social networks. He's with us now to explain how he did this project and why. Hello. Hi, Chris. First of all, why did you embark on this project? Well, um, more and more phones are actually being sold online and the, the market is actually booming. We expect, I think... Uh, more than 100 million phones being traded by 2018. So we thought it would be a good idea to figure out whether data was still available after you wipe it. Are the majority of them sold as wiped? Yes, most of them were, were wiped, yes. And when someone defines their phone as wiped, does that mean they've sort of gone into the settings? Because there's a button you can sort of select on the phone that says reset to factory, isn't it? And it sort of resets it to how the phone apparently was when it came out of the box. Is that actually what happens? Most people actually use this uh, setting on the phone, and that's what the vendors suggest you to do before you sell your phones. It doesn't always delete the data. Why this data is not properly deleted, you first have to understand how the, the data is stored on your phones. So phones basically store the data the same way a library would store books. So essentially you have books on the shelf, and every time you want to access a book, you have to look up its location in a search index table. Now, some phones will, when they wipe the data, they will actually delete both this index table and remove the, the books from the shelves. But some phones will actually only remove the index table. So it appears to you as if your data has vanished. But if you look directly at the shelf, the data is still present. The books are all still standing there. So if you were to just wander along the shelves, you could potentially retrieve a book. Exactly so. And is that what you did with your project? Yes, exactly. So uh, we looked at the shelves directly and looked at the data rather than relying on the index table. And, well, we found actually quite a lot of data. So on some phones, we were not able to recover data. But on some other phones, it was possible. And this depends on uh, versions and models. What sorts of juicy things were coming up? Well, basically everything that you can think of. So uh, most phones will have... I don't know, I've got quite an imagination, Laurel. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> pictures, yep. uh, basically uh, there are dozens or even thousands of pictures on the phones. So you, you'd find selfies, you'd find family pictures, pictures of kids and babies. Uh, you might also find conversations. These could be emails, chats, or text messages. You'd be able to find out which websites people have visited and which apps they have installed. And also the, the, the contact list. 
So it's all potentially quite sensitive stuff. Yeah, exactly. Well, more importantly, you can also recover passwords. For example, passwords from uh, third-party apps that you install on your phone or passwords that are used by that is used by the phone in order to back up your data online. And because people uh, tend to use the same password many times in many places, it's possible also that could be a bigger breach than just for that thing that's on the phone. Is this something that happens on all kinds of mobile devices or are some vulnerable to this? The market is sort of split between the Apple phones and the Android smartphones. It's about 50-50, isn't it, roughly? Yeah, yeah. I haven't personally looked into the uh, iOS devices, so I can't really comment on that. This is Apple. Yeah. yeah, Apple. I haven't heard report of data being recovered from those phones. But what about Android? So it's more on a case-to-case basis. There isn't really a, a magic uh, version that is vulnerable and another one that isn't. There are versions sold about two, three years ago that are more vulnerable, and these are often the ones that people are actually selling online. So what can someone do about this? If you're someone who's about to flog an old phone or give it away to your kids or something, what can you do? to make sure you're not a victim of something like this happening? Okay, so that's a difficult question because, as I said, all phones are different and it depends on model. There are some steps that you can take to try to improve the situation. One of the things you can do before you resell your phone is to enable the encryption option in your settings. This basically scrambles your data to make it difficult to retrieve by someone. This technique essentially is often as reliable as the strength of your passphrase, so you're better off with a really long passphrase. Once you've enabled this option, you restart your phone, you you ask for the passphrase, and you can wipe your phone. For multimedia files, it's a little bit different, especially on the Android platform. So if you actually want to get rid of this data, you have various possibilities. None of them are fully reliable, but they will improve the situation. So one of them is to use an external memory card to save your pictures instead of the, the default one on the phone. A second option is to connect your phone to your computer via a USB cable and delete manually the files on your phone and then copy large files I uh, see. On, yep. on the phone. until so basically just fill up your phone with, yeah. with stuff and it's a bit like shoving new stuff onto the shelves of your library. It's going to push out all the old stuff exactly. so the fingerprint of it being there is gone. So even though you're giving some data away, it's still stuff you don't care about because it's just exactly. random rubbish. So, so as I said, this is not fully reliable, but this will help. Another way you can do this is also by trying to record a really large video until the memory is full. (laughs) Well, that happens on my phone pretty frequently anyway. Laurent Simon, thank you very much. He's from Cambridge University. Now, let's come back to some practical advice. Laurie Craner is with us and also Jason Hong. Laurie, let's begin with you. So what advice can you give our listeners on how they can better protect themselves if they're not wiping phones? What else could they be doing to make sure that they're not falling victim to these sorts of threats? Well, I think the first thing is that they should set up a uh, password or PIN on their phone so that uh, to protect themselves from somebody finding their phone and being able to access their information. Uh, So I think that's important. And then I think they should also uh, be careful about what apps they download and realize that most of the free apps, the part of the reason they're free is because they are essentially spying on you and trying to send you targeted advertising. Basically, just don't download them in the first place. You don't download them unless you know what you're doing. Jason, any sort of thoughts that you could add to the equation? Well, in the short term, one other thing you can also do is put your phone into airplane mode uh, before you play some of these games. Uh, that way it won't get your location data and also won't use Internet access. Uh, but in the long term, we're definitely going to need a lot more support for app developers and for regulators to make sure that they can help ensure our privacy. 
Does this mean that people basically have to vote with their thumb? Tell manufacturers and writers that you're not happy to have your data being exploited in this way and uh, they'll get the message. That's basically right. We need, as a society, to figure out what's the right balance between these app developers making revenue while also uh, protecting our privacy. Thank you very much uh, to all our studio guests this week. That was Jason Hong. Before him, you heard Laurie Craner and also Laurent Simon. And now Daniel Blackwell has been getting to grips with this brain-tingling question sent in by listener Hannah. I've heard that London cab drivers get bigger parts of their brain from having to know where all the roads are. And I'm wondering if the bit of my brain that makes my right thumb type text messages on my phone might also be changing. I stopped twiddling my thumbs and spoke to Professor Arko Ghosh from the University of Zurich to try and get my head around things. If we take the brain of a London taxi driver, regions associated with memory are on average bigger than the general population, even when compared to bus drivers who navigate on more constrained routes. Our brains are very flexible and can allocate their resources depending on our experiences. This can be very specific. For instance, concert violinists who grew up playing the instrument have higher activity in part of the brain linked to the little finger of the non-bowing hand, but not of the bowing hand. Estimates suggest that more than a third of the world's population will own a smartphone by 2017. What is in store for this growing smartphone community? Are we also changing our brains like the taxi drivers or violinists? We recently found that the part of the brain that receives information from the thumb generates more electrical activity in people who use touchscreen phones compared to old-fashioned phone users. We think this brain difference reflects the heavy reliance on the thumb in the more modern users. Hold the phone. How soon before our smartphones have an impact on our brain? And is it permanent? These changes seem to occur rather quickly, immediately following a period of, say, intense texting. The brain area that receives information from the thumb becomes more active. So we do not think these brain changes are permanent. In fact, we believe that the brain is continuously updated according to how we use our thumbs. This activity is likely to tail off after a period of non-use, possibly taking a few weeks to revert back to normal, but we don't fully understand this as yet. It's good to know your brain does go back to normal after a phone detox. But is this change something we need to be worried about in the first place? Every time you thumb through your phone, you do change your brain a little. But it is too early to say if this is something to be concerned about. We have a lot to learn about how the ever-changing brain impacts our behaviour in general. So our interactions with our smartphones are shaping the way our brains work and respond. With the always increasing possibilities of new technology, it looks like our brain will be changing for as long as our futures last. But we still have a lot to understand about how and why this is happening. In fact, smartphones offer a beautiful opportunity to understand how our brains are shaped by our daily lives, as the day-to-day behaviour is seamlessly stored into the phone logs. A big thumbs up to Arco for that brain-tingling answer. Next week, we'll be relieving ourselves of this question sent in from Johannes. Why is it that I want to urinate more frequently in colder weather? If you would like to speculate why you need to pee more when it's cold, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or get stuck into the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Greer Jackson and Daniel Blackwell for production. And thank you also to Carnegie Mellon's WRCT radio station, who kindly provided a studio for our guests this week. 
Do join us next week when we'll be talking about the subject of marijuana, the root of a lot of scientific and political controversy. We'll be picking apart the chemistry and the potential medical applications of cannabis. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education. It's also supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name is Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.